Uh, so forgive me if I have to stop and take a drink. And I'm equipped not just with one, but two handkerchiefs today, one in each pocket. So I'm, I'm ready for that. Uh, last week, we started a series on the five solas um, of the Protestant Reformation. Sola is a Latin word that means only, from which we get the word solo or soli. And um, last week, uh, we started looking at the first of these five solas. Um, if you weren't here last week or you're not aware, uh, this past Tuesday was the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation. And in the sermon last week, we had a sort of very brief rundown of what that means. Uh, and if you want that same rundown, you can listen to the sermon from last week, because I think that our pastor, uh, Anthony, did a much better job than I would do. My church history is a little bit rusty. Um, but basically, we're, we're taking five Sundays to look at these, these five doctrinal or theological statements that we base our faith on. Um, last week was sola scriptura. We talked about the, the belief that scripture alone is sufficient for our faith and our practice, and it contains everything that we need to know uh, from God, and that it is truly God's inspired word. And today, we are looking at the statement, sola Christus, Christ alone. And so before we dive into this uh, topic, I want to pray first for our understanding of God's word, um, and then also that as we reflect on 500 years since the Reformation, um, purely that in the next 500 years to come, should the Lord tarry that long, uh, that he would always continue to bind us together. We did mention last week that uh, we might be separated by names, like a Presbyterian church or Methodist church, uh, but it is our unity in Jesus that stands, um, and it is very real, even if we might worship in different churches. So I want to pray uh, that going forward, that would always be the Holy Spirit's work among us, to, to bind us always together, closely together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, who might be at a church with a different name or a different uh, way that they do things. So um, please pray with me, and then we will hear from God's Word. Almighty God, we give you thanks that we can come into your presence and worship you. We give you thanks that you have not left us alone, but have opened a way for us to know you, to be restored in our relationship to you, and to be whole and complete again. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who binds us together, through whom you show us your great redemption, your great love, and your plan to fix everything Please open our ears and our hearts to hear from your holy word today. Holy Spirit, work in us always, all Christians everywhere, that we would know the Lord Jesus and through our love for him that we would grow always to love each other, to grow closely together as the one family of Christ. Lord, bring glory to your name and fame to your works and your wisdom. Um, we do pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, today is the doctrine of sola Christus, Christ alone, which is the statement that we believe and affirm that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. 
that it is Christ who is our hope, that our hope doesn't come from some other spiritual path or some sort of effort that we, that we muster up ourselves before God, some other creative way that, that we think we can be near to God or restored to Him, but it is Jesus alone. And Scripture makes this very clear that in God's wisdom, in the path of redemption and life that He sets for us, it is Jesus alone, the person that we come to and come through in order to have hope and salvation and be restored to our relationship with God. And I think that uh, most of us here, if we're Christians would say that we believe this. We affirm that, you know, Jesus is our Savior, and uh, we affirm it as His way alone and His salvation alone, which is what we need and gives us hope. And um, didn't know we were going to sing In Christ Alone this morning, but I had, I had made note of, we do sing that song here pretty regularly, and, and In Christ Alone, our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, our song, a cornerstone and solid ground And so what exactly do we mean when we're talking about in Christ alone is our hope and our salvation? Today we're looking at the book of Hebrews. So if you'd like to turn there with me, we're in chapter 10, or I believe it's also on the screen, which it is. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Thanks be to God for his word. Um. Hebrews is the book in the New Testament that's probably best known for its talk about faith. It has that famous verse in chapter 11 that says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. And then it follows with what's sometimes called the Faith Hall of Fame that gives a list of these biblical characters and the way in which their life was built on faith in God and how they serve as examples for us now, people like Abraham who By faith, Abraham followed God even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, Noah built an ark even though he didn't see any floodwaters at the time. But he trusted God that it was going to happen, so he did it. But this is in chapter 10, and this verse here serves as a nice little summary of chapters 1 through 10 in Hebrews before we get to the list of faithful people. Um, Hebrews, as we see here, is concerned with explaining what exactly Jesus did in his death and resurrection and how his work benefits humanity. That's the chief concern of the author of Hebrews, is what what does Jesus' work matter? What, What does it do for us? And 
not just does he explain it that way, but he's also showing how Jesus' work fulfills things that occurred in the Old Testament. Hebrews is unique in the New Testament because it's the book with the, with the, the most direct quotations from the Old Testament. There are other books that quote the Old Testament, but Hebrews has the most. And the author quotes the Old Testament explicitly and repeatedly to demonstrate that the things that we read about and learn about in the Old Testament were sort of hints and foreshadows that God was giving people to look ahead to a day when Jesus was going to come and actually be the fulfillment of all of that. And so it reaches back repeatedly to the Old Testament. It demonstrates uh, through talking about things, especially like the temple or the priesthood or the sacrifices, how God was anticipating his, his greatest act of redemption through Jesus. And this is very important for us to recognize, uh, particularly today, looking at sola Christus. Because as Christians, um, I think sometimes we, we tend to be sola New Testament people. Um, we, we like to give a lot of our attention to the New Testament. It's what we're a little more familiar with. And I don't think we, we don't disbelieve the Old Testament. We don't hate it or think it's not true. We believe that it's the Word of God, and our Bibles contain both of the Testaments. But it seems like sometimes we, we give more attention to the New Testament, and we don't always get the relationship between the two. And so, um, when we're thinking about, you know, how do things in the Old Testament make sense with what we believe now about Christ, Hebrews is really helpful in sort of bridging that gap and making sense of them. And so, one thing we have to understand is that uh, one thing that was mentioned in the sermon last Sunday is that all Scripture is God-breathed, Old and New Testament alike. All of it is inspired by God the Holy Spirit and is useful for our understanding, our training in righteousness, our faith. And so, because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's redemptive works in the Old Testament, any understanding that we have of who Jesus is has to be built on that foundation. We can't separate Jesus and his work from what God started to do in the Old Testament. And so it's, it's kind of trendy to talk about Jesus as this like spiritual guru or this person who somehow managed to attain this higher level of consciousness and then he's teaching us how to be more conscious of our awareness and things like that. But none of that has anything to do with the work that God started in the Old Testament, of which Jesus is the, the final touch, if you will. And so we can't separate Jesus, when we say Christ alone, we, we can't separate our understanding of that from the work that God started in the Old Testament as well. So let's keep that in mind. Hebrews uh, is a letter that was written to Jewish Christians, which is... Um, explains a bit of why there's so many Old Testament quotations. And these Jewish Christians, we can tell from the content of the letter, the way the author writes, that they were experiencing persecution, presumably from other Jews, because they were believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And in the early first century, when Christianity was spreading, um, sort of as the years got on, if people, if Jews became Christians, Eventually, they could not participate in the uh, rituals and sacrifices of the temple in Jerusalem. 
That's extremely important to know. For Jews, the temple in Jerusalem was everything. Um, Throughout the Old Testament, we understand that in the temple was God's actual presence. Um, In the center of the temple... In the center of the temple was a room called the Most Holy Place. And in the Most Holy Place was God's actual presence. Where the Ark of the Covenant was, God said that he dwelled between the cherubim, who were these little golden angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And God's actual presence was in that room in the middle of the temple. And one day a year, only one day a year, one person, the high priest, was able to go into the Most Holy Place and perform a sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of all the people. And then he had to leave. He couldn't linger in God's presence. And he had to do that year after year to make atonement for the sins of the people. And the reason this sort of thing happens, we're going to get down to Bible 101 here, is that it's a fundamental biblical teaching that sin separates people from God's presence. So if you go way back to Genesis, when Adam and Eve first sinned, and they have to leave the Garden of Eden, they are actually cast out of God's direct presence, which means that all of us are cast out of God's direct presence. And we know, of course, that God is omnipresent. He can be anywhere. His presence is everywhere in his creation. But his, his direct, unmediated, full, complete, holy presence is something that cannot share the same space as sinful people. So think about the story of when Moses asks God, can I see your glory? And he says, you can, but you can only see the back of me because if you were to see me in all my glory, you would die. So sin separates people from God's presence, but God in his wisdom in Israel implemented this way for his presence to dwell with people again. And it was through the temple. And so his presence was in the middle of the temple They could make sacrifices to have their sins atoned for. They could be restored to relationship with God. But it was this only this limited way where only the priests could go in and only one day a year. And so the temple is extremely important, was extremely important for for Jews. And so for them to become Christians and not be able to participate in the temple was a huge deal for them. It wasn't just like they didn't just make a sort of a casual decision to become Christians. It was, a, it was a tremendous loss for them, or so they thought, to lose the temple. So the author of Hebrews writes to them, and he tells them that don't, don't be tempted to go back to the old covenant. Don't be tempted to go back to the temple. Don't think that that would be better than what you found now in Jesus. And he explains because... Jesus himself is actually superior and better to the Old Covenant, better to what they had in the temple. That Jesus himself is the fulfillment of everything that they had in the temple and in the priesthood and in the sacrifices. Those things in the past were looking forward to the time when Jesus would come so they could have the fullness of God's redemption in Jesus now. The whole book hinges on this idea that Jesus is a new and better high priest. And that the things that people had under the old priesthood would not be worth going back to. 
because Jesus is now superior. His sacrifice is superior. His priesthood and his intercession for people is superior to what they would have had if they had gone back to the temple. So I'm going to read another portion from Hebrews. If you'd like to read, uh, this is chapter 7, verse 18 and following. And the author is referring to the old priesthood and the old covenant. He says, The former regulation it set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it wasn't without an oath. Other people became priests without any oath. But Jesus became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. It's quoting the Old Testament there. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest, referring to Christ, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of all the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Now the point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle which is set up by the Lord and not by man. Now remember we had said that being in God's presence was something that was lost when sin entered the world. But the author writes here in verse 19 that a better hope is introduced by which we can draw near to God. The hope of people is to be near God. The old hope was to be near the temple where God's presence is, and the new and better hope now is through Jesus to come near and draw near to God. In verse 24, he says that Jesus' priesthood is permanent. It never ends. Jesus isn't going to die and have to get another priest to fill his place and another priest after that. Jesus is alive forever. His priesthood is permanent. And in verse 27, he says that his sacrifice is not something that reoccurs annually, but it was once and for all, final and complete and sufficient. And so because Jesus is resurrected from the dead, no longer in the grave, he is our completely righteous mediator between us and God. We can approach God and have our relationship restored to him. As we said in the verse in chapter 10, it talks about having confidence to approach the throne of grace. It is our perfect high priest. Hebrews goes to great length to explain. Our high priest guarantees the presence of God with us again because he lives forever, because his sacrifice is perfect and complete, and because he is faithful to be our intercessor 
forever. And so when we talk about, finally getting around to this, when we talk about sola, sola Christus, Christ alone, this is what we're talking about. The only hope of salvation, the only hope of restored relationship with God is Jesus Christ. Sinful people cannot dwell in God's presence. And it's been that way since Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell. But Jesus has become our high priest. All the things foreshadowed in the past have finally been fulfilled in him. He's made the perfect atonement for our sins that doesn't have to be repeated every year. And he's always in God's presence as the resurrected Lord, being our intercessor, being our mediator. He absolutely guarantees, with no room for doubt, with no room for fear, that that relationship between us and God is restored and everlasting because his life and ministry is everlasting. So one thing you have to think about is we, we cannot be our own mediators. If we could just waltz right into God's holy presence, it would defeat the purpose of having a priest, having any need for an intercessor, and, uh, but we obviously can't do that. It's pretty clear. God is perfect, and we are not. God is perfect, and we are not. And that claim gets a little bit tricky because today such a thing is highly offensive to say that we're not all perfect, we're not the way we're supposed to be, somehow God is higher than us, but we can't be there. That's kind of a controversial thing to say today. And I'm going to take one step farther on the the path of controversy and offense and say that we, human beings, do not have direct access to God. Now, it's trendy today to talk about through meditative practices, we can be near God. Through walking in the woods and being in nature, I just spending time with God. Through any sort of spiritual exercises that I give myself to or some sort of path of higher consciousness, I get to be near God. But those things don't deal with the fundamental problem of humanity, which is sin, which is our unholiness compared to God's holiness. That is the issue. That's the thing that separates us and has to be overcome. Humanity is separated from God, our Creator, because it's our sin which keeps us from His holiness. It gets kind of... uh, Harsh to talk about sin and unholiness all the time, doesn't it? But anytime we talk about sin, we have to talk about gospel as well. The word gospel means good news. For there to be good news, we have to recognize that there's bad news. You don't need good news if everything's peachy. You need good news if there's also bad news. And God himself is the one who brings the good news to us. And so... Talking about, oh, I'm so sinful, I'm so unholy, I can't be near God, I can't ascend to the heights of holiness to be in God's presence. I mean, yeah, that stuff is true. But it's God himself who recognizes that problem, recognizes our situation, and brings the good news to us. So I don't want us to sort of bristle or roll our eyes when we're always hearing about sin. Because when the gospel is preached, when God's good news comes, we have to recognize the bad news first which is sin and our unholiness and our imperfection. But let's give thanks to God because it's his plan to solve our problem for us. We don't have to muster up this idea or come up with some clever solution to bridge this gap between us. Think about the hymn, It Is Well. 
the, I think it's the second verse that says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Christ knows our situation. Christ has regarded our helplessness and noticed it, implemented himself as the solution to our problem. So this is where we find ourselves with the gospel. Since the beginning of the biblical story, man has been sinful. We have needed a mediator to bridge the gap between our imperfection and God's perfection. God set the old covenant in place to show us that eventually the full redemption was coming through his son. And in Hebrews 9, we can read real fast, chapter 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this, meaning by the Old Covenant, that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper, for they're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations which apply until the time of of the new order. But now through Christ alone, the new order has come. The perfect mediation of Jesus is in place. Because Jesus ascended to heaven and took the place at his Father's right hand, he has an ever-living and everlasting intercession between us and God. We have boldness and full confidence to be in God's presence. And the, the rest, the peace that comes from this, is even though I know that I'm incapable of fixing my own situation, we believe that it is Christ alone who is capable of fixing our situation. And I can't think of anybody better to be in that role than Jesus. I'm very glad that it's not my job or my responsibility to do that because I would fail really badly but through Christ alone, our hope comes. So now after all this good news, I have to acknowledge that um, something that makes this message hard for me to preach is that I'm very much shaped by the culture I live in. Our culture tells us that such exclusivity as this is wrong, that it's hateful, that it's closed-minded, that it's narrow thinking, and how dare I make such a claim that Jesus Christ alone is the only way. I mentioned earlier about sort of the prevalence of, of uh, you know, meditative higher consciousness or walking through nature or just doing really nice things is when I feel close to God. But like I said, none of those things solve the problem. The problem is separation from God and no amount of practices or efforts that I put in are going to fix that problem. But don't get me wrong, once we are Christians, once Jesus is our mediator, we do, we can draw near to God at any time. But to say that I don't need Christ, that I get near to God when I do anything else that I just really feel passionate about or that makes me feel alive, that's not what Scripture says. And those things don't solve the problem. And so I'm, uh, I feel little uneasy. I feel legitimately worried about offending somebody with what I'm saying, um, but I can only say what's in Scripture, 
And if the biblical narrative of God's redemption is true, which it is, then our problem doesn't get solved by good effort or spirituality or anything like that. It's solved by the solution that God gave us, which is His Son, whose perfect sacrifice and perfect intercession alone brings us close to Him. And so I invite you, please don't think that you or me or anybody else can be close to God through our own efforts, through our own creativity. Don't think that we can design some better way or some better trick to be, to sort of bypass all this stuff about sin and, you know, having our sins atoned for and having to ask for forgiveness. Don't think about that. Don't think that you get to choose who God is or how you might want to interact with Him or what's the best way to come into His presence. I know this sounds very exclusive, potentially even offensive, but know that the point of proclaiming the gospel, the point of proclaiming this is not to be closed-minded or to make people feel boxed or caged in. It's to set people free. If I'm left to my own creativity to design a way to get close to God, that's an awfully big responsibility and a big burden that's on me. But I don't have to do that. The gospel is perfectly clear. The work of God on our behalf is perfectly clear, and we are invited to come into that, to put down our own efforts, our own plans, our own spirituality. Put those things aside and trust Jesus. Trust the high priest that God has given us. Uh, Another theme in Hebrews is the fact that Jesus opens the door and leads the way into God's presence. Walk behind Jesus and let him walk you into the most holy place, into God's very presence. Come and rest from doubt. Rest from confusion. Rest from wondering, oh man, do I get to be close to God today? What's he going to think of me today? Rest from that and accept that Jesus is perfect and everlasting and his role as our high priest never diminishes. His sacrifice doesn't lose its power. It's always there and Jesus is always there. So, in closing, if the book of Hebrews is true, then where else could we possibly go to find such a hope as we're given? Who can offer such a promise as Jesus? I can't. I can't come up with something better. You, surprise, cannot come up with something better. No one is so faithful as Jesus and no plan so perfect as that of God's to bring redemption. And so going forward forever, we're going to stand on Christ alone, the hope of glory. Christ alone, our perfect high priest, our perfect sacrifice. To close, I'll read the benediction that's given at the end of Hebrews. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, everlasting Father, our great Savior, thank you for the promise we have in Jesus, your Son. Thank you for letting Jesus come and be the fulfillment 
of all the things which happened in the Old Testament. Thank you that the most holy place is open for us. Thank you that we know you, O God. Thank you that Jesus welcomes us to follow him into your presence, to be washed and cleansed in his sacrifice, to rest from effort, to rest from fear, to rest from disobedience and wandering. Thank you for true hope, which gives us a reason to carry on. Thank you for its security and everlasting promise that you've given us. Let us go always remembering that our access to you is not our own, but it is the Lord Jesus. Fill us with confidence and thankfulness for that. We thank you for your holy word, for all of it, for your promises and your goodness to us. In the name of Jesus, our high priest, we pray. Amen.